0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny, and I am here with the one and only Isaiah Taylor of Valar Atomics. How is it
1: going? It's going fantastic. Thanks so much for having me, Emmett.
0: So I've wanted to have you on for a while, actually, even before your big announcements. Congrats, by the way. That's a huge deal. You guys have acquired the funding you need, and you are now in the running for Thank you. the future of nuclear.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's right. You've been, you've been kind of thinking about this and we've been talking a little bit even since before the announcement. So yeah, thanks for, for being interested in following along.
0: Yeah, of course. So before we get into your sick new reactor and like everything you guys are going to do, tell me a bit about you, because I think you have a different story than frankly, most people. And I think most people that end up in this industry and you have some deep roots in American nuclear history in your family. I believe so. Talk to me a little bit about that. Where are you from? What's your background? In all this. How did you get here?
1: Dude, yeah. So my background is sort of growing up in, I would say, the early shadow of Elon Musk and SpaceX. Just massive, massive inspiration. My cousin and I, and you know, a farm in the middle of Illinois. Would read everything we could possibly find about what what Elon was doing at SpaceX. This was you know super early days, and we would go out into the fields and you know try to create chemical rockets, you know blow things up we We built like a little you know shield for for blowing things up, still managed to catch ourselves and plenty of other things on fire. <laughs> I found some some early journals of mine when I was five or five or six and finding like very intricate designs of machines that I wanted to create and and mass manufacture and yes just since i was very young i i kind of had the sense that the world needed to be built in a in a faster and faster way like i kind of had this just visceral sense of the accelerating timeline of technology and i wanted to be part of it very badly mm. and that was sort of the backdrop to to my growing up but also kind of grew up you know all over the midwest and very disconnected from the whole silicon valley scene and certainly disconnected from, you know, anything in, in energy and, and hard tech and that kind of stuff. And my plan to sort of get integrated into that was actually to kind of follow the Elon track. So, you know, what Elon did was he had Zip2 and he had PayPal and he kind of did his whole, I'm going to get the software under my belt and I'm going to get this big exit. And then once I've got this big exit, I can go and jump into my hard tech ambitions. I can do you know, fifty million dollars into SpaceX. You know, I can get yeah. Tesla started. These sorts of things, and I know I think a lot of a lot of people who think about hard tech and have hard tech ideas have that path in mind. And it was certainly in my, in my mind somewhere through that process, though. I I kind of switched around and realized, like, you know, Elon probably needed to do that back in the early two thousands because the funding environment was very different, and and really there was no sort of emergent category of venture backable hard tech or. Bootstrappable, hard tech even. It was all, you know, corporate at that point. You know, it, if you look back in like the 50s and 60s, there were certainly garage projects that turned into massive things. But somewhere in the 70, 70s, and 80s, things got conglomerated. There were mergers, and, you know, hard tech, incredible hard tech projects stopped being as much of a, you know, something that you could just start out of your garage. But I think that's changing and and I'm certainly drafting that. I'm I'm, you know, riding on. The progress of many people over the last two decades that I'm extremely grateful for. That includes, you know, an entire new category of VCs that are willing to to finance extremely ambitious hardware projects, as well as entrepreneurs who have sort of trailblazed along that path as well. You know, Palmer, Brett Adcock, at Figure, Elon, all of these guys have have sort of you know sort of shown that it's possible. And and so that's that's kind of the you know the place that I've been looking. In the last few years, just kind of discovering that it's possible. Um, But yeah, as far as like my personal background, you're right. I I have some really interesting family ties here. I actually got a text from my dad this morning about my great grandfather, and he was like, "Hey, you know, actually, you know, your great grandfather, your great grandfather was 24 when he was working on the on the Manhattan Project, and I turned 24 earlier this year. So we have some interesting timing alignment on that as well. I'm kind of launching into this project around the same time that he was launching into the Manhattan Project. And so, yeah, that's, that's very cool.
0: That's thrilling. So what did he do on the Manhattan Project?
1: So he was, he was working at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Hmm. Well, it, it wasn't the National Laboratory back then, right? So it was a military installation. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, you know, picked a spot in the middle of the woods of Tennessee and created a town of 80,000 people. The first houses went in about three months after they broke ground. And, you know, it was somewhat near to, to other towns, but mostly nobody really knew what was going on back there. I have some some fascinating recordings from my great grandmother actually that I, I sat down with her at a, the breakfast table and kind of asked her about oh, wow. you know Oak Ridge and and what it was like to live there and heard some incredible stories. Uh, there's also uh, some some fun books written about it as well. But yeah, they they were working on isotope separation, so they were trying to you know create the the uranium enrichment for uh, you know what's going on going into into the bomb, obviously. Oak Ridge became the center of a lot of different experiments, fast reactors and breeders, and you know, mm-hmm. kind of the the locus of of how do we manage the isotopes and get the isotopes that we need. And yeah, like obviously, molten salt, you know, fast reactors, lots of lots of cool stuff was prototyped at Oak Ridge. That's really fun to have that that family connection.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, not even so the TVA supplied all the power for that, right. and not even David Lilienthal, who was running it, knew what was going on there. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. He, he found out so my,
0: after Hiroshima, like everyone else.
1: Yeah. And he was like, my, oh, my whoa, that's what we were doing? No, totally, totally. Yeah, my, my great-grandfather was one of 20 people that actually knew on site what was going on. And my great-grandmother didn't know about it. It's really funny talking to her, listening oh, to, to telling the story from her perspective and meeting with the, the other wives who were there and everyone kind of theorizing, like, what are we doing here? There are some interesting theories that kind of went around the you know, the town of what, what exactly was happening, but they never quite got to the answer.
0: Yeah, no, I have no doubt. I mean, General Groves had an incredible lockdown on information yeah. back then. So I have, a, I have a question. So you're a fellow Midwesterner. Love that. Love Midwestern excellence. Central time. Yes. God's time, as everyone
1: knows. <laughs> That's good.
0: So let me, let me ask you a question. You say, you know, now you're sort of in the SV orbit you know, you're in that world. You grew up in farm country, didn't go to college. Congrats, by the way. Yeah. And now you're a Midwestern boy in this area. How did your background prepare you or not prepare you for the world you stepped into?
1: You know, I think one thing that's really interesting about and maybe this is a Midwest thing, maybe it's just a country thing, but I was talking to a friend about this the other day. There there are huge benefits to growing up in a city and growing up sort of being plugged in and connected to the center of the world, the powerhouse of the world. Like there are really two centers of the world. It's Silicon Valley and it's New York. Like those mm-hmm. are those are the two centers of the world today. And I'm including SoCal in, in Silicon Valley, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. So there's huge benefits to growing up there. And one of those is that you grow up very aware that if you have the right idea and you have confidence and you're, you, you, know, you have this basic ability to accumulate capital and accumulate resources and bring people onto your team and onto your side, that those resources are there and that those people are there. And all of the ingredients that you need are sort of available to you if you can only rise to that challenge. You grow up with this, this visceral feeling of that, I think, if you're living in big cities. I think what you're missing a little bit though and what you get if you're kind of growing up more in, you know, on the country, in the countryside is like that you can actually do things yourself, that you are personally competent to actually do everything that's needed all the way down to the last atom because there's this sense of like individualism that you can pick up in in the country that is totally missing from the city and a sense of ownership of like an entire chain of processes. So like if you're living out in, in the middle of nowhere you are relying on yourself heavily for a wide array of systems and relationships to work well you actually need to know how you know to fix you know anything that breaks right you you actually need to know how an engine works all the way down chemistry is not an academic subject to you it's sometimes you know a matter of life and death or a matter of livelihood and obviously that's you know not nearly as true as it was let's say 50 years ago but that mentality is still around And I think that's a, that's a very good thing is that we, you know, we just have this, you know, I would say in the Midwest, especially this mentality that how things work are very much your business and the fact that they work well. Uh, One of my favorite things is like in aviation, you can go on these forums in like aviation communities and just see people talking for hours and hours and hours about. You know, the very minute science of lift and material science and engine construction and densities of fuels and all these things. And none of these people have like degrees in the subjects they're talking about. They're just, you know, people who, you know, live on farms and fly every day. Maybe they're crop dusters and uh, all this stuff matters to, you know, their daily life. And so they really dig into it. So I, I would say that's something that that's a perspective I'm grateful for and something I often find lacking when I, Interface with people who are more from that city perspective. Like they know they can accumulate the sort of techno capital power to do something, but they also kind of lack the confidence that they can learn to do each individual thing themselves.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, as somebody who grew up in the middle range, who grew up in the in the Midwestern suburbs, what I can say, you know, my wife is from Los Angeles. And one of the things that I noticed in talking about our different backgrounds or whatever, you know, she's in that. Big California band (laughs) that you're talking about, that region is that we had to learn how to make our own fun. Yeah. It's like, there's not going to be a venue for your band to play. You got to go figure that out. No label is going to come around and give a shit about what you're doing. You have to release that record yourself. Like, there is no one, no one cares about what you're doing and like your success or you getting to express yourself or do whatever you want or be who you want to be. That's completely up to you, you know? There's no one coming around like seeding your culture
1: for you. That's right. That's, that's totally right. It's, it's sort of like working out. You've got, you know, muscles that will atrophy if you're not using them. Mm -hmm. And I think the muscles that atrophy, if you are super plugged into those circles are, that's exactly right. Making your own, you know, your own fun, your own culture, seeding your own ambitions and moving in your own sort of self-directed way rather than joining in a a general movement or a, a general crowd, right? I think Valor is a, an extremely contrarian idea. It's got a lot, of, a lot of ingredients that are extremely counterintuitive. And I really feel like since I've sort of announced this, I've noticed a lot, other, a lot of other people who have been thinking in this direction, but, but I'm also grateful for the fact that I sort of had to cook this up you know, a little bit on my own in order to, to get to the very contrarian position that I have.
0: Well, let's talk about Valor and your contrarian position then. I think that's a perfect segue. So tell me, what what are y'all up to? What's your vision?
1: Yeah, so the vision with Valor Atomics is to drop the price of energy by ten times in the next ten years, and then thereafter thereafter to continuously drop the price of energy for as long as the company exists. I think that you know companies no company will last forever, but as long as Valor allow, Valor is around, what we are doing is um, reducing the price of energy, and that's very important to me for a few reasons. One, I think. It, is that energy is sort of this base of all human activity it's something that we rely on implicitly without realizing it for everything that we do when you're eating every day one thing that you're doing is collecting nutrients that help your body function but a lot of nutrients can be recycled a huge huge proportion of what you're doing when you're eating is actually just absorbing energy you actually need this base fundamental thing called energy to to live at all you know that's what calories are right and beyond just biological life, all of the other things that we use in modern society also have energy at their root. You know, we're using energy in not just continuous modes that are obvious like transportation, but also in the manufacture of everything that we have. So everything, you know, that you can see in the screen behind me, walls and doors and glass, and, uh, you know, this microphone stand, like energy was a absolutely vital piece in the, in the construction of all these things it's It's a little noticed, uh, but absolutely crucial to hmm. you know the our modern life. and then you know I'd forecast that into the future and say what our life is going to look like in the next couple hundred years. So energy is wildly important. it's wildly important to me. and specifically the price of it is also very important. This is a a, a second big thing that goes unnoticed, but you know how much energy costs plays into more than you would think, and today, Plays negatively into into way too many things, you know. Aviation is one of those interesting ones. It's like near and dear to my heart. I love flying, I love aircraft, and one of like possibly the biggest constraint in aviation, other than regulation, which is a separate topic, is uh, just fuel costs. Like fuel costs, kind of governs that industry. It started to gar- to govern the car industry too in the in the seventies and eighties, and I would say, you know, kind of transitioned, you know, transportation as this very soulful. I would say sexy industry in the, in the sixties into, you know, just kind of solving for a, an energy price. And I think that's a shame. Like, I think that energy is completely abundant in the universe if we know how to unlock it and know how to use it and harness it. And so, yeah, the, the mission of valor is to do that. I want to unlock this energy abundance that is, you know, embedded in nature already and release it for, for humanity to use.
0: Love that. I completely agree, by the way, about the automotive industry. I think about that more and more. So let me ask you, let's, let me ask you some specifics here. Uh, How we have a lot of different reactor types or atomic visions, like in the running right now, what sets valor apart? What are you guys doing in particular or going to do in particular that achieves this dream of yours?
1: Yeah. So before I answer that, like, let me preface this by saying, like everyone who is trying something new in nuclear today, has my utmost respect, and I mean that without reservation. Like if, if you have taken the leap to work on a nuclear startup, like I, you start with so much with me. You start with so mm-hmm. much respect. But having said that, Fowler, I think, is the best st- nuclear startup in the field by far, and it, it is honestly. Nearly uncomparable to to any other nuclear startup, and the reason for that is we actually have a path to a scaled energy business. And what I mean by that is, I I like to say that I have turned nuclear back into an engineering problem again. It's been a long time mm-hmm. since nuclear has been an engineering problem. Uh, it's been a regulatory problem, a you know social infrastructure problem. It's been you know political and you know. Popular cultural problem, removal problem, cultural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all of these things. It's almost everything except an engineering problem. And, and it's been that way for a very long time. And there are small markets in which it's different, right? So like DOD is an interesting market where it's somewhat there, you know, there's engineering alpha in, in DOD, but the DOD is not the biggest market to go for. If we're talking about like the broad base energy market, I like to say we've turned that back into an engineering problem. And the way that we've done that is to change the product and change the customer. So most, if not all other nuclear startups today are trying to sell either nuclear reactors or they're trying to sell electricity. And the, the customer they're selling that to is a city. So mm-hmm. they're trying to sell either reactors or electricity to cities. And I think that right there describes some of like basically all of the problems with, with nuclear startups electricity turns out to be a pretty terrible product and cities turn out to be pretty terrible customers. So if you, if you notice, like we kind of stopped building things as the U S government as infrastructure in like the Mm sixties. So we don't build massive infrastructure anymore. And when we do, it takes forever. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately nuclear is like classed into that. Like nuclear is simply a civil infrastructure project today. And the interesting thing about Valor and really the, the reason that I chose the direction we did is that it actually doesn't have to be a civil infrastructure project anymore. The way that we do that is we don't produce electricity and we don't sell it to cities. What we do is we produce fuels and we sell that to the global energy market. The switch there I think is absolutely vital. So creating fuels is a much, much better product than electricity. You have pricing power, you get to pick your customer, you get to sell it to a broad range of customers, you can hold on to it till the price is better, you can you know, transport it across the world. And then who are you selling it to? Well, you're selling it to this much less constrained customer who can buy it from you very quickly, who can store it, right? There's an entire market around the, the, the trading of, of hydrocarbon fuels specifically. Mm-hmm. So yeah, basically changing up the customer and changing up the product, I think changes everything.
0: So let me get this. Let me reflect this back to you to make sure that I'm on track with your vision. You're saying, I don't want to deal with the utility system. I don't want to deal with American power markets. That's all a morass and annoying and probably even unhelpful for our atomic yeah. aspirations. What Valor wants to do is to take nuclear technology and turn it into a sin fuel generator and then sell that fuel onto the global market, basically put it in competition with the fossil fuel industry as such.
1: That's right. Yes.
0: So tell me about that. That's very fascinating. I love that it's controversial. I'm into that. I've been talking to my buddy, Mark uh, Heinemann, who's in the, or was, I think he's he's just stepped on into his own atomic dreams. I'll talk to him about that soon. But from the fracking industry, who's been very, very Um, interested in figuring out how to Electrify and decarbonize fracking using nuclear. Tell me about what specifically the setup for creating synfuels looks like for Valor.
1: Yeah, so the basic concept is very simple. You need hydrogen and you need CO2. If you have hydrogen and CO2, you can create basically any chain, chain of hydrocarbon you want. To that point, the two inputs are basically just you need a lot of energy. And the main reason you need energy, and I'll back up a second and say, actually, it's water and CO2, and you need energy to, to break the water into hydrogen and oxygen. And then you're basically actually kind of stepping down the energy chain a little bit because hydrogen, from a mass perspective, is the best you know, energy fuel that we have. So from a perspective of a pure mass, and when we're talking about chemical energy rather than nuclear energy, mm. pure hydrogen is, is the best you're going to get. Now, the problem is hydrogen is very, very difficult to work with. It permeates through metal, it embrittles metal, it's not volumetrically dense, it's, it's gravimetrically dense, right, but not volumetrically dense. And so we need carbon in that mixture. And carbon really just stabilizes it, uh, it makes it you know, a liquid at certain temperatures, much easier to pressurize, the molecule is larger, you know, which makes it not permeate through things. There's a lot of nice things about mixing carbon into there. And so, yeah, the the process is quite simple. Once once you have hydrogen, you have you have CO two, you can make, like I said, any any chain of hydrocarbon that you want. And really, it's a manufacturing problem. It's a problem of how can you you know cheaply and efficiently build a machine that takes those base ingredients and and builds these different chains. And can you do that in mass manufactured setting? And can you deploy it, you know, efficiently and then begin to sell those fuels?
0: Mm, okay, so. Instead of relying on the power grid to get your product out, you're going to be relying on pipeline infrastructure, I imagine, for a fair amount of this.
1: That's right. So there's uh, trillions of dollars worth of hydrocarbon infrastructure in the world today. And I, I would say you know, it's an interesting to, thing to look at is we have this concept of an energy grid. And when people talk about the energy grid, they're thinking of electrical transmission lines. Mm-hmm. But there's this hidden energy grid that you know most people don't realize is there, and that's the hydrocarbon grid. So, pipelines of hydrocarbons, trucks, ships, right? That, you know, trains are, are for moving. Coin. Yeah. Trains, exactly. Yeah. That are moving the, you know, massive, massive amounts of energy all around the world every single day. That's actually feeding these, you know, sort of much smaller energy grids, quote, you know, it, that are electricity. And that's, you know, the infrastructure that we get to slot directly into, which is, again, going back to why I say like Valor is the best nuclear startup out there. And, it's because like, we have this sort of infinite scale potential. You know, If you're any other you know, startup that's wanting to deploy nuclear, you're relying at the end of the day on some civil infrastructure project to allow you to plug into a grid. Instead, you know, what we want to do here is not limit our scale factor on any sort of permission system where we have to work with civil infrastructure to scale. Instead, we want to you know, have a very, very large distribution option and then deploy our own, you know, infrastructure into our own sites, and then just scale into that massive, massive, you know, pre-existing distribution system.
0: Okay. That is big. I love that. Oh, a lot of that's there. I think we're starting to see some experiments in pipeline infrastructure. I think a Southern California utility do this of hydrogen blending to see what the tolerance is for existing pipeline infrastructure. We know that the US government is interested in hydrogen production uh, to a large degree. So it seems like there's sort of a baseline agreement that hydrogen is going to be part of our ongoing energy story. I think what remains to be seen is how big a role that is and Valor will play a role in that, I imagine. But tell me, how do you guys get over the hurdles that hit the, as you describe them, civil infrastructure, electric power, nuclear facilities? Because I imagine, You still have to deal with the NRC. You still have to deal with DOE nuclear. You still have to handle all of this other stuff. Or am I wrong about that? Tell me how you clear this hurdle.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So I would say the most important thing here is that this gives us a little bit of optionality. I think we will absolutely be dealing with the NRC in some capacity, either that's, you know, to be doing um, the construction of a site in the US or to be working with the NRC and another foreign regulator to be, you know, Deploying a site there, so we will almost certainly be working with the NRC. But the thing that's interesting here is we get to have uh, the way I like to put it is there's this there's this overhang whenever you're doing nuclear of working with what I would call an overbearing regulatory environment. And I think it is overbearing. I think anyone who's sort of reasonable and and looks at nuclear can reasonably say like this is an overbearing environment. There's this overhang it, no matter what if you're doing nuclear. And the problem with every other sort of electrical production, nuclear startup, or even just existing nuclear industry, is that you have to pay for that overhang everywhere that you want your power. So if you are wanting to do electrical production for Chicago, you have that overhang in Chicago. And then if you want to do it again for Dallas, you have to pay that overhang again in Dallas. But if we, what you're doing is producing massive amount of hydrocarbons, you only have to pay for that overhang once. Right. So you need one area that you can create a massive amount of nuclear power and be selling a massive amount of hydrocarbons. That's not true for electricity, though. And the reason it's not true is because electrical transmission is simply just lacking. Right. We don't have massive, massive electrical transference, you know, through all the energy grids in the US. We also don't have capacitance. Right. So there's this problem of, you know, nuclear can never be more than a certain percentage of base load because it's very hard to scale up and scale down. You always have to have this, you know, separate section of base load that is things that's a lot more scalable, or you have to have a ton of capacitance, neither of which we have right now. Hydrocarbons, though, actually gives you this ability to deploy as much capacity as you want to a single site. So, like, I I like to say, you know, we had this we have gigawatts you know being turned on in, in nuclear today in georgia we have gigawatts here and gigawatts there but if you were to put like a ton of these gigawatt scale reactors in one site to try to amortize the cost of that you know that nuclear overhang there's nothing to do with that much power like you can't actually sell that much power because the the lack of transmission but if you're producing hydrocarbons you can like there you can actually you know you can actually build terawatts worth even of nuclear you know capacity and then actually do something useful with all that energy.
0: right. so I would imagine that so what I'm hearing is that the grid has topographical problems that still lie constraints in terms of how much power can be conveyed, how many customers it can supply, et cetera, et cetera. and then we have all of the complications of maintaining a reliable grid, which will pretty much always involve some sort of portfolio, right? Yep. So that's what I'm doing yep. for you. It's like, I doubt we will ever get rid of ramping natural gas facilities. We might switch yep. up fuels, but not what the turbines provide for us, which is the ability yeah. to uh, catch spikes in demand, right? Like that's really important. Exactly. Okay. Yep. So then to me, it seems like the first sighting is sort of the holy grail for you where it's like, where are we going to get maximum pipeline access? And that's something that I don't know a lot about. Like to me, that's a little bit of a dark continent because it seems like hydrogen is so new to our pipeline industry. So what are some hurdles you anticipate there? And how are you trying to solve for them in the lead up to
1: all this? So maybe this was a bit of a misconception from from earlier, but we're not going to be putting hydrogen into those pipelines. So we'll be putting methane in. So, gotcha.
0: Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the goal here is to create methane, natural gas. And that actually means we can literally slot directly into the existing natural gas. Oh, so it's
0: gravy for you. You're good to go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So like we can, we can go into LNG terminals. We can go into pipelines. We can go into, you know, trucking infrastructure and, you know, sell it directly into those midstreams, which are then shipping our our molecules straight to, yeah, nat gas turbines or to SpaceX, right?
0: Yeah, I love that. So what's prime real estate for you?
1: So obviously there's a, you know, anywhere in the Southern US, there's massive, you know, gas infrastructure, Southern Canada, Northern Mexico. But, you know, like I said, those are sort of prime sites because they have so much existing pipeline infrastructure. But the fun thing about this and really one of the things we're betting on is the optionality of it. So if you have, Mm -hmm. you know, methane in any corner of the world, they will build a pipeline to you. And that's that's something that's been demonstrated time and time again. Really, there's a one of the most incredible industries in the world, I would say, is the industry that currently chases the production of hydrocarbons. So not many people realize this, but like nat gas wells, you know will lose forty percent of their pressure in the first year. And what that means is that natural gas wells are constantly being drilled, and there's this you know entire industry that basically just chases those drill sites. And I, I do mean chases because there are these fleets and fleets of, you know, dudes with trucks and pipelines that are constantly building and tearing up infrastructure all over the world to chase these molecules. It's truly a beautiful thing. I actually love that industry. I have friends who work in it. It's it's genuinely like a frontier industry. You're out there. Yeah. And you know, I,
0: I love that attitude, bro. I love that yeah. attitude those guys have. It is. It's incredible. It is invigorating
1: to be yeah, around. Yeah. It's amazing, you know. You know, some of the, I, I've one of my favorite guys I've ever employed. You know, was a was a trucker in in North Dakota, and just hearing his stories of uh, being in negative ten degrees, you know, by yourself in the absolute middle of nowhere with a truck full of hydrocarbons that you need to get from point A to point B, and the pass is snowed over. And yeah, it, it's an incredible industry, and and I love everybody who works in it. That's you know all that to say. Like if you have hydrocarbons somewhere in the world, one thing that's been demonstrated over and over again is that you will figure out a way to sell them even you know you can be a pariah state and still be selling your hydrocarbons at a decent price maybe let's oh, say a 20% sure. discount right <laughs> but but you're still selling your hydrocarbons so yeah I, I mean that's that's really i think our our huge advantage here is like it's all about getting the product right if your product is hydrocarbons they will they will build a pipeline to you and and will be able to sell them so this is where going back to of what is the key idea of valor? I, I feel like I have turned nuclear back into an engineering problem again. If we can get the engineering to work where we're using nuclear fission to synthesize hydrocarbons, we have fixed the customer side of nuclear energy, which I feel actually unlocks the scale potential of nuclear energy for the first time.
0: Okay. I'm um, I love that. I mean, I'm a pro hydrocarbon guy. I'm like an easy, I'm an easy get for you. In terms of speaking (laughs) to you for you guys,
1: yeah. So I appreciate that. There, there are not many pro hydrocarbon guys out there, but love to meet fellow (laughs) fellow hydrocarbon appreciators.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, talk to me about this. What's are you guys bringing unique design elements into your reactor or whatever? Let's talk about that a little bit. So we've talked about this hydrocarbon side, which is great. Talk to me a little bit about like the fission side of it. What are you What are you guys doing?
1: Yeah. So. I I can't sort of give you the the full breakdown of what, what the reactor looks like, but what I will say is there's going to be a lot that's new in it, not because, you know, the existing designs today don't work, but really because nobody has had a good reason to mass manufacture nuclear reactors before. The mm. best, you know, map here would be something like the U.S. Navy, but, you know, their target has a lot less to do with like low unit costs and it has a lot more to do with like you know 50 to 100 year lifetimes and you know absolute reliability because it's going to be in a small capsule underwater with you know a bunch mm-hmm. of US soldiers in it but yeah nobody has really had a good reason to mass manufacture nuclear reactors right you know before and when that's your target when what you're actually looking at is you know integrating this into something that can genuinely tr- you know chase trillion dollar industry right you know there's 1.5 million sorry 1.5 trillion dollars worth of methane being sold every year if that's your target the design of that thing is going to look pretty different than than a lot of other designs that have been out there before i will tell you that we are absolutely planning on targeting fast spectrum fast spectrum opens up you know an awesome field of of possibilities and but you know the focus is really going to be what's something that can genuinely be printed off like like toasters right you know we we want to be want to be making nuclear reactors like toasters
0: you want to be stamping it out is what exactly. I'm hearing. Like you want to bring, right. you want to go full Henry Ford on these boys.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to say it. I, I would also kind of associate it with SpaceX. So, mm-hmm. you know, what SpaceX did for the rocket industry is say, okay, you know, I, I've talked about this in other podcasts. So you may have heard me talk about this, but if you're familiar with the Musk concept of the idiot index, it's the question of what is the final cost of a thing? compared to the cost of the materials that went into make it. And, you know, Musk went into the rocket industry and said, wow, the, the idiot index is wildly wrong here. It's it's totally irrational. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. But one reason was nobody believed that the launch market was going to be big enough to justify, you know, the the CapEx and the IP spend required to make a rocket that's mass manufacturable and to make the supply chains for that. So what Musk did is is not just designed a rocket better but he initially the first and I'd say most important thing that he did was believe that there is a large launch market in the future that justifies treating rockets like cars or like mm. toasters or like phones or anything else that's supposed to be low unit cost low idiot index mass manufacturable you have to believe that you know it's you know that there are going to be hundreds of you know x built every year or even thousands of X built every year in order to sort of rationally set up a supply chain and a manufacturing process for X. That's really what I want to do with nuclear. And that's not to, you know, to disparage any of the existing nuclear concepts out there. It's just that if you are in nuclear and you're trying to produce electricity for the grid... The manufacturability of, and replicability of that reactor is not really your primary problem. Your primary problem is this whole civil infrastructure side, right? It's it's you know the concrete and the structures and working with the NRC and working with the city and the city council and the NIMBY's. And like that's the real problem when you turn your attention to something else and you know, doing, like I said, amortizing that cost across mm-hmm. a much, much larger, you know, output then the focus becomes, how do we stamp these out?
0: Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's really exciting. I love the idea of stamping them out. I think, yeah, I mean, mass manufacturing has been the American way forward for over a century. Yeah, it. We seem to have a unique genius for it when we can get it right, you know? And, I mean, that was the key to our victory in World War II, really.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, you know? yeah.
0: It was it was our edge over the frankly brilliant German artisanal engineers.
1: Yeah, yeah. I would say oftentimes much more impressive, you know, engineering going into some of those systems on the German side. And like beautiful. Like, (laughs) Like, you know, like I would agree. I would agree. Yes. You know,
0: like a a lot to admire that got totally drowned in our ability to just punch them suckers out. Like that was
1: yeah. As an aviation, uh, yeah, completely agree. Like some some genuinely beautiful engineering on the German side, but yeah, never bet against Freedom's Forge, right? Freedom's mm-hmm. Forge in the US, just the ability to, yeah, absolutely mass produce and stamp out thousands and thousands of whatever we need as fast as we need it is, mm-hmm. yeah, it's certainly an underrated American superpower that I'm very excited to, you know, sort of to revitalize.
0: Yeah, good. I love that. So let's sort of talk big vision now, right? So we've gone nitty gritty. We've gone your background a little bit. I think that you know, like I said, I've heard some of your other interviews. I think you're a pretty interesting guy in terms of your views beyond this thing. So we're both American patriots. There's no absolutely need to be shy about that here. And one of the other things that's interesting is I know that you are also Christian, as I am.
1: Yes, I am. So how, I didn't know that you were. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. So how does that overlap with your energy vision. I think that this is really interesting, right? Because those of us who come from the Christian tradition have a lot to contend with in terms of how we inherit notions of progress and what our relationship is supposed to be with the natural world and how we square the Janus face of Tubal Cain and Prometheus, right? So we have a lot on our plate. Tell me a little bit about how that works for you.
1: That's an amazing contrast. I love that. I would say... I would say my faith is absolutely at the core of what I'm doing. I'm not one of those people who says, yes, I have a private and personal relationship with Jesus that has nothing to do with my work. It's the exact opposite. I think that this is an extremely, you know, religious mission for me entirely. I I think that God, when he created the world and he created the first people, he charged Adam and Eve to make the earth abundant and beautiful. He, he commanded them to fill the earth and subdue it, right? And I extend that you know as as far as i understand it to to really the observable universe i don't think that that command you know just meant the garden of eden i certainly don't think it just meant the earth i think that it meant everything that we can see in in this vast you know observable universe and i think i have pretty good evidence for that if you kind of look at the trajectory of mankind from where those first words were uttered we have done some genuinely you know genuinely remarkable things if you look at New york city and and think about you know walking through Central Park with my wife a couple of weeks ago, yeah, you, like mankind has genuinely gone forward, filled the earth and and has done I would say a very good job of subduing, subduing it. One thing that I would say is like we should focus more on beautification as well, so mm-hmm. I think one one really, really serious aspect of the task given to Christians is the beautification of things so you know beauty is is directly related to to god like god loves making things beautiful you can just take a one glimpse at basically anything he's created in nature and say wow like he has a huge appreciation for for beauty and i i kind of think of what mankind is doing is is gardening so gardening takes a wild space and doesn't destroy it and doesn't sort of put it into a box but cultivates it right we turn it into something that takes the natural order and then elevates it, adds order to it, and brings a certain a certain kind of beauty to it and uh, yeah I, I would say that's like absolutely what what valor is doing. I think that access to abundant energy is this huge unlock for doing that sort of thing a lot of a lot of what we look at today and and think is not beautiful, I would say is downstream of starving for energy, going back to this this discussion of like cars mm. when. Energy and fuel cost was not this big issue. There was so much more artistry in cars and aircraft too. There was, there was really this artistry because you know, what that thing looked like was really, really important. And there's this constant like American love affair with the automobile, right? That, that is mm-hmm. very, very dear to me. And when we got into the 70s with the oil crisis, all of that went away and, and cars became sort of this like, function for the cost of oil or function for the cost of gasoline and i think that actually translates to a lot of places that are that are counterintuitive especially as ai picks up and robotics pick up and energy becomes more important i want that price to be very very low and i want it to unlock you know the ability for humanity to care about beauty and to to not just be you know solving for this this energy price function
0: no i think that that's very compelling so one of the reading series that we've been doing here on nuclear barbarians is um going through leo marx's work the machine in the garden uh the past technology and the pastoral ideal in america and one of the things that he locates is that in the american trajectory there has been since the discovery of the new world an attempt to find that pastoral middle range between the outer dark and over-civilization.
1: Sure, yeah.
0: And I love the counterintuitive point that actually fuel cost abundance allows for more beautification. It allows us to better synthesize the machine in the garden and to broker greater harmony between them. I think that that is a very surprising take. I'm very taken by it. I enjoy it. And I also think that Insisting on beautification is unsung right now in a way that I find very disheartening. I think that there is a lot that's deflationary about American culture right now. I think we're at a cultural nadir in all sorts of ways. And I think that through greater abundance, but not just abundance for its own sake, with its own set of intentionality, with its own aims, we might have. Yet another American revitalization.
1: I yeah, amen, absolutely, and I I agree with you as well on the point of not just abundance for for its own sake. Like like I said, I think specifically we are gardening the universe, and mm. there is a a specific aim of uh, beauty, and also you know a, an acknowledgement that humans really are the pinnacle of of the created order. When you're making a garden, you're not just making it. For the, you know, enjoyment of, you know, other biological life around you. You're not making it in such a way that, you know, a, a passing horse will appreciate maximally. You're creating it in such a way that acknowledges the sort of primacy of mankind in that context. Mm. And that's also something that I think that's very much missing. In my Twitter bio, I think I say something like age of man appreciator or age of man enjoy or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And what I mean by that is like, Mankind really is the the pinnacle of, of creation, and if we kind of want to get into the theological weeds here, I would say that like the the death and resurrection of Christ actually kicked off what i what I call the age of man, and what that is is because Christ became a man and you know was was resurrected and is on the throne of the universe, if you kind of follow that logic out it it you know just say that sentence out loud like a man is on the throne of the universe Mm-hmm. That is the most validating stamp you could possibly have for humanity, right? Like I'm, I'm long mankind, a very long mankind. I know that in the EAC circles, which I would like identify myself EAC, but there's this a little bit of a sense there of being long intelligence as maybe like a, sort of an arbitrary Concept or a, a concept that's like divorced from humanity.
0: Yeah, it lets you bring in also a little bit more of the emphasis on AI and stuff like that as well, right? Like you get a bigger inflection with a broader
1: definition sure, of
0: intelligence. Yeah.
1: Right, right. And but but you'll hear people, you know, advocating like, oh, eventually like AI will overtake us and there will be mm-hmm. just sort of this intelligence singularity that goes throughout the universe and and the the position of mankind kind of being diminished in that future. And I would Put myself completely counter to that and say, no. Like you know, the reason we accelerate artificial intelligence is because the universe is truly our birthright. Mm-hmm. I mean that. I mean that absolutely. The entire universe. It is. It is the birthright of mankind. Um, not because we created it, because but because the creator of all things became a man. And mm-hmm. you know, Christ declares you know His lordship over every square inch of the universe. And being a man, you know, that makes it directly like our mission and our call, our responsibility to go out and govern and and garden everything that is in the sort of thermodynamic realm. And so yeah. I'm, like I said, long, long mankind. I, I don't think that this is sort of this technological inflection that leaves humanity behind. I think instead the technological inflection really, you know, is the the lengthening of of man's arm there's a lot of responsibility to that, right?
0: Yeah, it's not casual, right? If it's, no. if it's of great power, it's of great consequence, right? So we yeah. have to we have to think correctly about this. And I think one of the things that's very fascinating as we move into this attempt at unlocking more and more energy, accelerating our proficiency with certain types of tech, is that I think we're going to see more heated and hopefully more thoughtful debates and fights over what the nature of the good is for us. I think that yeah. that is absolutely necessary because you and I can't say that it's arbitrarily decided, right? Like no. we don't get the yeah. luxury of that, right? We, we yep. have <laughs> duties that accompany how we go forth with that. And again, I think that the exaltation of beautification is a huge yeah. part of that.
1: But see, a nice thing about that as well, the fact that it's not arbitrary is that we can have greater confidence in it. So, one of the things that I pointed oh, yeah.
0: out, I'm long on the human soul, right? Like,
1: <laughs> one of the things I pointed out in one of my threads the other day was that everyone is sort of questioning is energy, is using energy good? And, you know, the basic response to that from like a relative frame is to say, well, energy is good because using energy is good because it's abundant and because it furthers your ends. That, of course, begs the question like, okay, so it furthers your ends, but you know, are your ends good? Like it's an increase of power to the agent, but is the agent good? And that's where, yeah, like a genuinely transcendent frame has to come in and say like, actually, yes, our ends are good. And I think that gives you a degree of confidence that sort of the relative, relativistic frame just cannot really have. At the end of the day, you know, if your, your frame is purely relativistic or purely materialistic, you will always have this lingering question mark of are my aims really good? Whereas from the transcendent frame, from Christians, we can say, yes, they are good. And specifically, like for America, I believe that, you know, abundant energy for the United States is good. And I, I mean that in the deepest sense of good, not just, you know, that it furthers America's ends, but that I like America's ends and, and they are the right ones.
0: Yeah, right. That, we're not just stacking up utils, right? Like that's yeah, exactly. The... <laughs> yeah. We've got, we've got other game we're hunting. No, I think that is absolutely fantastic. So how was that vision received? in the sort of hard tech, even cultural space that you're in right now? Because you already identified that the EAC guys, the accelerationists, aren't all one big thing, even if they share a banner. So tell me about that, right? Because I think being a Midwestern boy who's avowedly Christian and things like that might separate you from some of your peers in interesting ways.
1: It does, but also, you know, I think it's it's exciting and people are hungry for that. You know, I think Mm. the EAC... Immediate success of EAC and that banner being something to rally behind, I think is a a reaction to the sort of ambivalence of our modern age. You know, if you look at like, you know, the EA, EAC stuff is blowing up on Twitter right now because of the open AI things that went mm-hmm. down in the last hours here. But, you know, that it, again, it's like there's something to fight towards. There's a specific goal to fight towards, and that's very attractive. So I've noticed so far, you know, even if people... Don't exactly agree with my my end. They're very intrigued by it, and in fact, very inspired by it. Because you know, in in our modern society that is highly agnostic. You know, ag- being agnostic also leads to a certain amount of ambivalence or at least uncertainty in these ultimate ends. And you know, walking up and saying, "I have ultimate ends here. They are come fight with me." is a is a very attractive proposition.
0: Yeah, I think it's grounding. You know, yeah. I think that that is that is the experience of it. So, all right. You're an insanely busy dude, and I don't want to take up much more of your time. I really appreciate you coming on. And I think this is sort of a beautiful note to end on. Is there anything else you'd like to leave the audience with before we depart here?
1: Really, just if you are a world-class engineer, come work with me. We are going to be building what I think has the potential to be a trillion-dollar company. There are, you know, just out the gate, $1.5 trillion worth of methane being bought and sold every year. We want to make all of it and sell all of it then there's all the other chains of hydrocarbons to chase. Beyond that, you know, there's energy that's going to be needed on Mars and on other planets and out in space. And uh, yeah, we want to generate all of it. So if you're a world-class engineer, come work with me.
0: All right. I know I have engineers that listen. So guys, if any need work or want a new and more ambitious job, reach out to Mr. Taylor here. You can find all of his contact stuff in the show notes where you can check out valor atomics and everything else he is up to be sure to give him a follow and remember to stay sharp stay strong and stay radiant we will see you next time